The food we eat accounts for nearly a third of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Red meat, dairy, and tropical fruits are some of the worst offenders. In fact, if everyone in the U.S. ate no meat or cheese just one day a week for a year, it would be like taking 7.6 million cars off the road. David Freudberg is host of NPR's Humankind. He and his team have put together a two-hour documentary entitled The Diet Climate Connection, as well as a handbook, The Climate-Friendly Food Guide, with tips on how to reduce your environmental food print. David Freudberg joins us today from our studios at WGBH in Boston. Glad to have you, David. Good morning, Heather. So where did the idea for this documentary come from? I mean, as host of Humankind, you're on the radio every week talking about issues of environmental health and personal well-being. But this is a full two hours just on this one topic of food. Why why that focus? Sure. Uh, It's it's two one-hour documentaries, and we had uh, been working on them over the last year. And it honestly derives from a longstanding interest of mine in food and healthy eating, Back in the 90s, we received uh, a major grant from the National Institutes of Health to do a project looking at the health benefits for Americans who choose to eat more fruits and vegetables and greens and legumes, uh, the considerable benefits. And so I became more sensitized to that. Um, It sort of strengthened uh, a personal commitment I've had for a a long time uh, to – to incorporate a lot of that into my personal dietary choices. And then, of course, in more recent years, uh, we've all been hearing a lot about the environmental challenge posed by the threat of climate change. And um, increasingly, I started to hear about how there were very significant links between our food system and the foods that we choose to eat and emissions of the uh, heat-trapping gases that um, lead to climate change. And that really fascinated me, and uh, I sort of started to dig in. Well, we'll dig into the science of that in a minute, but I have to know, have your personal eating habits, did this change the way that you see food and change the way that you eat? Well, I have um, personally uh, tried to follow a plant based diet for many years. Uh, I'm not perfect at that, um, but I'm pretty clear that the consensus of public health, it actually strengthens over time uh, as more and more studies from around the world come out, indicates that uh, it's simply the healthiest choice for people to eat more fruits and vegetables and grains and legumes and fewer animal products. Uh, There's no cholesterol in a plant-based diet. Um, The saturated fat um, is weighed down. There's just lots of good reasons to do it. It promotes weight loss. And this simply um, redoubled my commitment in a way because I started to see, I mean, we've just come off this horrendous period where we've had the hottest summer on record which is a pretty staggering fact, in 2012, followed by the largest hurricane ever recorded by meteorologists, Sandy, that just uh, lashed the eastern seaboard. And uh, here we are. We're looking at things that are eerily close to the dire predictions of climate scientists for a long time. And uh, I think 
this is an area where we as individuals can actually make a positive difference. And so uh, it intrigues me a great deal. I'm talking with David Freudberg about his documentary, The Diet Climate Connection, and we'd like to hear from you. How have you changed your eating habits because of concerns about climate change? You can reach us at 866-999-4626 or by email at livinglabradio at wgbh.org. You can also tweet us at livinglabradio. So, David, let's let's really dig into this and explain how it is um, that that food creates greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, we, we typically when we're thinking about greenhouse gas emissions, we think about our cars and our power plants. We don't think about food as being a greenhouse gas emitter. Well, I think it starts from a pretty noticeable imbalance. Uh, when you look at the tremendous emphasis on livestock production in our food system, you see an enormous use of energy and of uh, chemicals that are associated with climate change. Um, uh, it takes more than 30 pounds of grain and soy to produce one pound of beef. Uh, that number has actually gone up. The number I just quoted is on the low end of a range given by the USDA. And um, there's also thousands of gallons of water that are consumed in growing the grain and soy. And these are used to feed not humans, but the animals whom humans ultimately eat. So the enormous inefficiency of that has uh, a consequence in resource uses, um, which is a, a pretty significant problem in a planet of billions of people, a significant number of whom are hungry. So there's that issue right there. And then we look specifically at the greenhouse gas emissions associated with livestock production. So um, we all know about the carbon footprint. That's something people talk a lot about when we're considering the problem of emissions related to climate change. And there's a lot of carbon uh, emissions associated with uh, our livestock system, particularly the machinery, the transport. Um, it's a very complicated calculation. There are scientists all over the world who've crunched the numbers on this. But with livestock, there are other greenhouse gases um, that actually have a far greater potency uh, in, in uh trapping the heat. So the reason we're concerned about greenhouse gases is because when we pump them into the atmosphere, say from our cars emitting carbon dioxide, they have the effect of trapping heat. So the atmosphere becomes hotter, the, the oceans warm, um, the air is hotter, and we have these weather extremes associated with climate change. When it comes to livestock production, even more than carbon dioxide, there are a couple of other greenhouse gases uh, that are very worrisome to climate scientists. One is methane, which is emitted um, by the uh, cows in particular themselves, uh, delicately described by one scientist in our documentary project as coming from the front end and the back end of the cows. And also their manure, not a particularly uh, delicate subject, but a very real fact of life 
in these um, livestock operations uh, is, is an enormous source of methane, which has much greater greenhouse gas potency than carbon dioxide. The other big piece of this is nitrous oxide. There's a lot of fertilizers required, particularly in industrialized agriculture, which is what we're describing here, which is the dominant form of our food system by far. And these fertilizers are, are usually nitrogen-based. And the, um, the, the nitrogen basis of the fertilizers to grow the crops that feed the livestock um, is an enormous source of heat-trapping gases. So you take that kind of puzzle and put all those pieces together, and there's quite a wallop in terms of the effect on the environment simply because we are emphasizing livestock to the extent that we do, especially in the American diet. You know, David, in, in the documentary, The Diet Climate Connection, you spoke with Dr. Ronnie Neff, and she does, I, I think, a really great job of of kind of uh, summarizing what you were just talking about, all the different greenhouse gases, and she kind of breaks down a hamburger, and, and it's actually an almost uh, humorous moment where you're really getting across the science, but it's it's really quite fun to listen to. A hamburger, perhaps the biggest impact comes from the methane, which comes out of the um, cow's belching, out of the front end of a cow. And some of it also comes out of the back end of the cow. It also comes off of the manure of the cow when that manure is stored um, wet in kind of cesspits where they keep it. So for every cow that you produce, you've got to feed it grains in, in an industrial system. And so um, they're fertilizing it with nitrogen-based fertilizers. And so that's the chief source of the nitrogen that is coming off of the burger. I just love how you get the cow sounds in there and, and, and uh, break that up a little bit. As I said, make it a little bit humorous well, I, I, and a little bit easier to, to take maybe this, this heavy topic. Well, that's certainly true. I, I actually recorded that cow and um, was uh, amused when I placed my microphone in front of the cow and uh, she mistook it for uh, offering her some food. And I had to kind of persuade her verbally that a microphone was inedible even for a cow. And she eventually backed out. By the way, an interesting fact I learned while meeting with some of my, my bovine friends is that when a cow moos, it is a sign that the cow is unhappy. It's like a groan. We think of it perhaps as a sort of a pleasant cooing, but it's actually a groan. So I, I, I now know something more about cows. You know, I uh, spent several years as a very young child living on a farm, and I don't think I ever knew that fact either. So <laughs> the things you did, learn. Did, did any of the cows try to eat your mic? You know, I didn't have microphones around at that time, so uh, I, I can't tell you if they liked the taste of a microphone or not. But uh, now, you know, we're talking about the fact that it's the in a lot of cases that red meat, a hamburger, beef is one of the worst offenders in terms of its carbon footprint, and that's in part because of uh, the crops that have to be grown just to feed the cow. But there's been a bit of a movement towards grass-fed beef. Is that a better option? I think um, from all indications it is, but it's important to note that grass-fed beef is a very, very tiny uh, minority of beef available to average Americans. I, I try to 
trace the statistics on this, and fewer than 1% of beef products are grass-fed. And so it doesn't seem to be uh, a really practical uh, overall solution to, to this problem. What about organic farming? Does that have a lower carbon footprint than maybe what we now call conventional farming that does involve the, the pesticides and the, the fertilizers? Is, is organic farming better carbon footprint-wise? I think organic farming certainly is more uh, sustainable and is is part of kind of a whole complicated picture of uh, simply better ways to produce our food, doing less damage to the environment. Um, you know, there was a study that came out, uh, I think a couple months ago, from Stanford University that seemed to imply that there were no significant benefits to humans uh, from consuming organic foods. And that study has been in some ways largely discredited, and the authors themselves kind of indicate that the the data was not very strong. But um, certainly from the point of view of personal health, uh, it seems to me there's a very powerful case to be made for uh, eating as many organic foods as possible foods grown organically simply because fewer poisons are sprayed on them. It's not a very complicated idea. Um, and th- those um, fertilizers uh, and that, are, that are used and the pesticides all have a significant environmental footprint. So certainly um, all of the uh, climate scientists that I interviewed on this project uh, agreed that as organic as possible um, will help with the climate change problem. Yeah, I remember when that study came out, that I, I saw a few great commentaries that kind of said, well, okay, maybe there's no direct you know, reduction in cancer or something like that from eating organic, uh, organically farmed food, but that kind of misses the point of what organic farming is about. It's not necessarily about cancer. It's about environmental health as much as, as personal health. Um, but I, I think... That just kind of highlights, and as well with all of this other stuff that we're talking about, how complex this can be, how complex an issue to try to balance. Um, Should I be eating organic or should I be eating locally or should I be cutting out certain food groups? Um, You guys did put together this booklet. Can you break down some of the maybe the simpler or more basic recommendations for people? Um, I'm glad you pointed out that sometimes it's confusing um, because in truth, the the basic facts that emerge from looking at this are fairly clear-cut, and um, let me try to go through a few of them. So um, when you look, for example, as the Union of Concerned Scientists did, uh, at a comparison of the uh, global warming footprint, if we could put it that way, of various foods... Um, the top of the list, the, the, the food source that has the greatest impact on the environment in terms of generating heat trapping gases is red meat defined as beef and pork. Um, so if you look, uh, for example, uh, at, at a comparison between beef and pork with um, fish, fruit, and vegetables, beef and pork emits about three times as many uh, greenhouse gases as fish, fruit, and vegetables in rough numbers. Um, 
And if you look at another source of protein, uh, the reason a lot of people have heavy meat content in their diets is because they're looking for protein. Well, of course, beans are a very rich source of protein, and they have about a sixth of the greenhouse gas impact uh, of beef and pork. So that's a considerable savings for the environment. If we're concerned about the hottest summer on record, if we're concerned about Hurricane Sandy and things that perhaps we as individuals can do to reduce our footprint that may contribute to those kinds of uh, extreme conditions, simply eating more beans and uh, fewer animal products is a, is a pretty easy rule of thumb. And beans can be awfully tasty. You know, I, I found it really interesting. We do worry a lot about, in this country, I think, about making sure that we get enough protein in our diet. I, I don't know how that's become such a, a part of our, our food thinking or food message, but I know as a parent, I'm always concerned about, are my children getting enough protein? And one of the people that you spoke to, I, I believe it was Anna Lappe, said, well, on average, Americans are actually eating twice as much protein as we need in our diets. Um, and and then someone else made the point that, that of course, these bulls that are are the, the food that we're often eating have gotten huge and, sorry for the pun, but have gotten big and beefy by eating nothing <laughs> other than grass and grains. And so, obviously, it should be possible for us to be perfectly healthy that way, too. Well, I remember some years ago interviewing uh, a uh, scholar at Harvard named Mark Hegstead, who was regarded as the top uh, academic nutritionist in the United States for many decades, and asking him precisely this question, what about our uh, obvious human need for protein? And he said, you know, in countries in the developing world like the United States, the developed world like the United States, uh, the, the much greater health risk is excessive protein not uh, deficient protein. Yes, it's possible somewhere in a country of over 300 million people that some people aren't getting enough protein. But much, much likelier is that we're consuming more protein than is actually healthy. Um, another uh, very distinguished nutrition scientist, Joan Gusso, who was chair of the nutrition department at Columbia University, once told me, somewhat shockingly, if you consume... Uh, enough rice in a given day, you can meet your protein requirement. Uh, basically, the protein requirement is an absolute essential of human nutrition, but it is way overblown. There's a lot of reasons why the livestock industry for decades uh, had a marketing message that I think uh, left a lot of people with misinformation. And the, the challenge is to figure out now, I think, in the year 2012, how can I meet my protein needs? How can I have a truly scrumptious meal? And how can I reduce my environmental footprint so that some of the uh, climate catastrophes we're starting to see more and more often uh, are going to be less extreme and less frequent in, in the summer? So these are the stakes, I think, STA. K-E-S, <laughs> that we um, are, are really looking at. Now, you spoke with Dr. Neil Barnard, and I, one of the things uh, when you and I first spoke about this, you said was most um, 
striking to you in doing this documentary was just how much the environmental recommendations squared up with health recommendations. And uh, Neil Barnard does a really wonderful job of explaining how this more eco-friendly, more plant-based diet could also start to help um, addressing problems like our obesity epidemic here in this country. When a person is following a totally plant-based diet, every bite that you eat has fiber in it. Whether it's vegetables or fruits or beans or whole grains, you're getting it the way nature intended, and the food fills you up as it should. The fiber holds water. It, it makes the food especially satisfying and filling. And so you push away from the table when you've had enough nutrition. But cheese or meat or eggs, they're not plants. So they don't have plant roughage. They don't have any fiber at all. So you get every last calorie that's in the cheese or in the meat goes into you, and people tend to overdo it with those foods. So their caloric intake tends to be more than it would be otherwise. We're talking today about the diet-climate connection. Have you made an effort to reduce your environmental food print? Tell us how and why by calling 866-999-4626 or email us at livinglabradio at wgbh.org. You can also tweet us at livinglabradio. I'm speaking with David Freudberg, who uh, helped create the Diet Climate Connection documentary. And David, I have to, to wonder, you know, we're talking about the obesity epidemic and some of these things like eating grass-fed beef or eating locally, which... Um, can be quite expensive. And I, I really have to wonder, how much is this issue um, just kind of a, a, a fad for wealthy Americans? How scalable is it and how applicable is it to the rest of the world or even to uh, poorer Americans? Well, first of all, uh, there are plenty of uh, cost-effective ways to eat healthfully and eat in a way that's climate-friendly. Uh, my visit with Dr. Neil Barnard at a Safeway supermarket in Washington, D.C. earlier this year um, involved uh, a tour of the aisle where beans are served. And uh, beans are, as mentioned, um, a, a healthier uh, and plentiful and highly uh, affordable form of protein. So it doesn't really require uh, more. There's obviously considerable expenditures uh, associated with buying meat products as well. Um, another piece of this of the sort of social justice concern um, we looked at when we examined uh, this fascinating emerging movement of urban agriculture. Um, we normally think of agriculture as something happens only in rural areas. But actually, there are community gardens uh, all over the country uh, in urban settings where people come together. They grow their own foods, typically vegetables and fruits, and uh, partake of them. And it's much, much cheaper to do that way, to, to do it that way. Um, and I know that you were intrigued by my visit to the White House vegetable garden established by First Lady Michelle Obama. Um, and I think we have a clip of my visit with the uh, gentleman there who runs the garden, Sam Cass. Let's go ahead. And you know, that. somebody stakes out a plot of land and, and all of a sudden people start investing in, in that plot of land and they start, you know, coming together to take care of the plants. And, and a lot can be built from that. And we see, you know, communities really uniting or, and start becoming more conscious about their health and what they're eating. And, and, uh, and from that, all kinds of amazing things happen. 
I think that was one of the a moment for me where I kind of went, you know, this is there's definitely a lot of science um, going on here with the climate science and trying to figure out um, from a, a numbers perspective how we can feed seven billion people sustainably. But then there's also this really social issue about uh, wanting to know where our food comes from and really interacting with food production in in a new way. Well, you know that is kind of an overarching theme and one of the reasons I was so drawn to this topic in the first place. I mean, I grew up in a traditional suburb. Um, my mom grew tomato plants in the backyard. Uh, I had very little awareness of the natural process of growing food. Uh, I looked it up. Two percent of Americans uh, lit work on farms today. Of course, when the country was founded in the 18th century, we were a largely agrarian society. That's almost all gone. Um, and thank God for the 2% of people who grow food for us. But the, the reality is that most of us are quite estranged from the way in which the food reaches our plate. Um, you know, uh, it's we, our contact, as I say in the documentary, is not through the sunlit fields. It's the fluorescent lit aisles of the grocery store. Lauren, and uh, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say uh, we've got just a couple minutes here, and Lauren has called us from Woods Hole. Hello, Lauren. Hello. Hi. Um, so a little strange sound on the phone, so I just wanted to see if you guys can hear me. We're, we're here. Go right ahead. Okay. So um, I'm just listening to this conversation. I've been thinking about you know, how it's very difficult for us adults to change our, change our eating habits. And, um, I mean, I think on a personal level, lots of people are making little changes. But to me, I feel like it's the kids that are kind of the future of possible changes, you know, that will affect the world on you know, a global scale. So just some some things that I've been thinking about is um, my husband and I are involved in uh, starting a school garden here in Falmouth. Um, we're involved in the Mullen Hall School Garden, and hundreds of kids have had the opportunity this fall to garden and taste fresh, fresh vegetables, and we've been amazed by what kids will eat um, when they're involved in the growing. <laughs> so, um, you know, healthy habits just, have, I think, have to start in childhood. Well, we've got less than a minute here, David, but you spent a lot of time with young people, and that did seem to be a theme in the documentary. It was, and uh, the second segment of the four half hours that are available for people to download at our website, humanmedia.org, the second segment of the Diet Climate Connection gets specifically into uh, initiatives at schools uh, to work with young people. And it, it, I think the caller is exactly right. When people get to tangibly see what this is and get to grow it and take some pride in it and, of course, experience the joy of tasting something they grew, it's a life changer. David Freudberg is host of The Diet Climate Connection, a special documentary from Humankind. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Heather. Good to be with you. Thanks to Jane Pippick for production assistance on today's show. You can find a link to the Diet Climate Connection, both the audio and the booklet, on our website. Go to capeandislands.org and click on Living Lab. This is Living Lab on the Point. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening. Living Lab on the Point is produced by Heather Goldstone. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Dan Tridel and Jenny Junker. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. Living Lab on the Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, 
a service of WGBH. Mm-hmm.